0: Y'all turn with, with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. If you're not familiar with the Bible, go to the end. OK? The very end, last book of the Bible. When I was a kid, around 10 years old, um, my Sunday school teacher gave me a book about the end times. And it was a very well-known book back in the uh, late '70s, early '80s. Uh, it sold 28 million copies. It was made into a movie narrated by Orson Welles, of all people. Um and I read that book, and it scared the snot out of me. It, was, uh, it talked about how um, in, in those days, the, the rate of, of earthquakes and famines and wars were increasing. Um, it talked about how uh, 40 years before, in 1948, the, the nation of Israel had been reestablished after World War II, and, and 40 years from that would be 1988. Uh, it talked about how uh, it predicted that That soon the the Soviet Union was going to invade Israel and a ten-nation European Union would be headed by the Antichrist. It would be a revived Roman Empire and it would take over most of the world. Uh, Christians would be raptured off of this earth and that would be the beginning of the end times. Well, I don't know if you've been keeping up with current events or not, but Jesus didn't come back in the 1980s, okay? Um, The Soviet Union never invaded Israel. Uh, The European Union does exist today, but it's 28 nations, not 10. And the guy who wrote that book is still out there preaching, as far as I know, never came out and said, you know, I I got a little ahead of myself, or "I, I, I was a little too confident in my own predictions um, never issued any kind of apology I'm aware of. And I don't know, you may think this is uh, surprising to hear me say, but I really think there should be such a thing as malpractice for preachers. <laughs> and one of the things that should get you in trouble, maybe get your, your ordination papers revoked, is to stir up people and make a whole bunch of money because you're playing on people's fears and overinflating what you really know about the end times. God's word is clear about this much. Jesus is coming back. And that's exciting. But we can get caught up in the prophecies of Scripture and thinking we know how it's going to go down. I want to make sure from the very beginning of this series that you know I'm going to start this series today. I plan to preach on it through the middle of June, late June. And at the end of it, here's my promise to you, at the end of it, you will still not know when Jesus is coming back. You will still not know who the Antichrist is or will be. You will still not know who the ten nations that represent the ten horns of the beast are, or the ten heads of the beast. I don't know the answers to all the questions. The book of Revelation is, is unlike any other book in Scripture. It's, it, is, it is difficult to interpret. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But it's in the Scriptures for a reason. God wants us to know this stuff, and I'm excited to begin this study. So let's look together at chapter 1, verse 1. There's a great fascination with this book in our culture today, even in a society which is more and more moving away from belief in the Bible as an authoritative book, more and more moving away from Christianity as a source of of information and, and knowledge on how to live. Even, even with all of that, there's still a fascination with this book in our culture. If you watch movies, TV shows, read the news, there are references to, to terms out of this book, 666, Armageddon, Antichrist, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and so on and so forth. The ideas of this book have captured uh, the, the fascination of our culture, and so I say that to say, this is a great time to invite friends. If you have friends who um, aren't churchgoers, And this is a great time to invite them to church. Now, if you have friends that go to church regularly somewhere else, don't say, hey, my preacher's talking about revelations. That's better than whatever boring stuff your preacher's talking about. No, don't do that. But if you have unchurched friends, invite them. Now's a great time. And for us, I think it's going to be an exciting time to see what God has planned. Let's pick up verse 1 of chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, three things out of that first little section. First of all, notice the title of the book. It's Revelation. Revelation. There's no S on the end of it, okay? I hear Christians all the time say, oh, we're going we're gonna to study Revelations. There's no S on the end. Now, understand, we gave the books of the Bible, Bible their titles. God didn't, so it's not a sin against God to call it Revelations. Jesus still loves you if you pronounce it that way. I just happen to be a bit of a Nazi about this kind of thing, so I still love you if you pronounce it that way. I'm just going to make fun of you, okay? I'm just telling you right from the get-go. Secondly, on a more important level, much more important level, notice in verse 3, this book promises to bless you. God is going to bless you if you read this book. As far as I know, it's the only book in the Scriptures that gives you that promise. And I can testify, when I was 21, almost 22, newly married, kind of lost in life, and, and casting about. I began to study the book of Revelation. I had read parts of it before. I'd read books about it before. I'd heard sermons on it, but i had never read the entire book for myself. And as I read that book, God did something in my heart. And that was the period of time in which God called me into the ministry, which, you know, aside from my salvation and meeting my wife, that's probably the third biggest, most important thing that God's ever done for me, and I'm not saying that if you read this book for yourself, you're going to get called to the ministry, okay? I'm not threatening you with that. I'm, I am saying, take the time to read this. If you've never read it before, now's the time. If you have read it before, it's great to get refreshed. If you already have a daily habit of reading the scriptures, way to go. Add this in there. And you don't have to read it all at one chunk, all at one sitting. We're going to be in this through June, so take your time and get through it. Reading this book will bless you. Number three, this is not an easy book to interpret. I just want to make sure you know that from the very beginning. Come to this book with great humility. Now, I'm going to say this in this way, and I hope you hear what I'm saying. I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings, but if you've ever read the Left Behind series, or you've seen the movies, I think Nicolas Cage was in the last one, which tells you what a quality production that must have been. Um, And I'm not... I'm not trying to denigrate the Left Behind series or Tim LaHaye who passed away last year. Um, I, I know people who got saved reading that. You understand that's a work of fiction, right? That's not the Bible. If you're familiar with the storyline and the whole scenario of a pre-tribulation rapture followed by a great tribulation, followed by the, the battle of Armageddon and, and the return of Christ and, and, and the end of the world... That's a scenario we're all very familiar with. I want you to understand, that's one idea of how biblical prophecy should be interpreted. And it's actually a pretty recent one. It's only been in the last hundred years or so that that's been a commonly held belief among Christians. You will notice if you read the book of Revelation, the word rapture appears nowhere in that book. Neither does the word antichrist. So don't go into Revelation thinking you already know the story. Come in with a humble heart and a humble spirit. I'll, I'll tell you again, I won't be doing a lot of predicting or speculating. I won't, I won't take a lot of time to look at the different views on different symbols in the Scripture. This is written in an apocalyptic style, so there's a lot of symbolism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing about what this or that represents, What what we're going to do, what we're going to try to do is look at what we know for sure, what God is communicating clearly through his word. Now, let me make a point to you about why this is so difficult. Think about when Jesus came the first time. Was there already information in the Scriptures about the coming of the, of the Messiah? Yeah, there were hundreds of prophecies in what we call the Old Testament that, that said, here's what the Messiah is going to be like, here's what He's going to do, here's, what, here's, here's who He will be. And the, the, the people of God, Israel at that time, they knew the Scriptures better than any of us. They were excited about the coming of the Messiah. They couldn't wait for it. They prayed for it. They longed for it. They asked God to make sure they lived long enough to see it. I guarantee you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the average Jew thought more about the coming of the Messiah than the average Christian does about his second coming. They were ready. And yet when he came, you know how many people recognized him right off the start? Nobody. You know how many people predicted that he would come in the way that he did? Nobody. They had the Scriptures right there in front of them, and they didn't see it. No one knew that he'd be born into poverty. No one knew that he'd be a man of reconciliation and peace instead of a military leader. No one knew that he would be rejected by his own people, the Jews. No one knew he'd be crucified for our sins. No one knew he would rise again. It was all there in the Scriptures, but nobody saw it. And it was only afterwards when the apostles sat around and talked it over, and the Holy Spirit was there instructing them, that they looked back and they said, oh, that's what that meant. I've known that scripture all my life. Now I know that it was about Jesus and I know what it's saying. And my, my opinion, my, my firmly held prediction is that when Jesus returns and we're all sitting around after the smoke clears and we're in the new world, we're going to say the same thing. Oh, that's what that meant. Man, I can't believe I thought I had it all figured out. He, he did it in a way that I didn't see. And you might say, well, does, then should we read it at all? Absolutely. It's in the Bible for a reason. It is there for our edification, for our benefit. And you'll get a great benefit from reading it. Just come into it with humility. And some might say, well, why doesn't God just make it clear? I mean, I want a road map. Why doesn't he just say, here's what's going to happen, followed by this and this and this? Because we don't need to know the map. We just need to know the one who's at the wheel. We don't need to know the whole story. We just need to know the author. God's got it. And part of this is helping us to see that he's got a plan. So, let's pick up verse 9. Let's continue in this chapter. Verse 9, as we, basically chapter 1 is an introduction to the the whole book. Verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we, we find out two things in that passage. We find out who wrote this and who it was written to. Now, who wrote it was a man named John. And most scholars believe, and I agree, that it was, he's talking about the, the disciple John. The brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the disciple who Jesus loved, the one who wrote the fourth gospel in the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And if that's true, then he's a very old man by this time, probably somewhere between 90 and 100. He's living on the island of Patmos, which we know is a Roman penal colony. So that means he's imprisoned on that island. And doing backbreaking labor in spite of his advanced age, he's working hard every day because of his so-called crime of preaching the gospel of Jesus. And if church tradition is correct, he's the last disciple left. He's seen all the others, all the rest of Jesus' original followers die the deaths of martyrs all around the ancient world. And now he's the last one left. And he's being punished for his faith. And then Jesus returns and, and he sees him, as far as we know, for the first time in decades. The one who the last time he saw Jesus was on top of the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended into heaven. And now Jesus appears to him once again in quite a different form. And what, we also see who this was written to. And this is the part I think most interpreters miss. And this is what gets us off track. The book of Revelation is written to specific people. Now, yes, it's written in an apocalyptic style, unlike any other book of the Bible, but it's still a letter. Now, what do we do with letters in the, Old, in the New Testament? Letters of Paul, letters of Peter, the letters of John, what we do with those is, before we jump, up, jump ahead and say, well, what does this mean for me, we start by asking, what did this mean to the first people who read it? What did it mean to the original recipients? Who were they? What were they going through? What was God trying to say to them? And only then do we jump to, okay, well, what does that mean for us today? The problem we have with Revelation is we skip over that step most of the time. We just open it up and we turn on the, the TV, you know, the daily news, and we say, okay, now which one of these guys is Putin? Um, you know, which, what, which one of these beasts represents ISIS? You know, which one of these represents Trump? Or which one, You know, we, we try to put day, today's news into Revelation without going through the hard work of saying, Why was this written in the first place? This is a letter. So who were these people who first received that letter? They're named in verse 11. They're seven churches which existed in what is today Turkey. No one knows why Jesus targeted these seven churches. They were all on a little hundred-mile route, kind of on on a mail route, you might say. We're not sure why he chose these. Some of these are are prominent churches. Some of these are pretty obscure. Next week, we'll look at them in greater detail because chapters two and three are specific messages to each church individually. But for now, let me just say, what we can know about these seven churches is they were full of Christians who were going through really difficult times. Some of them were, were struggling because they had lost their first love. They had become lukewarm in their faith, and they were starting to drift. Some of them were struggling because they were buying into the latest religious fad and, and being led astray by false doctrine. Some were in crisis because they were experiencing the beginnings of real persecution, at, at least ostracism and, and ridicule on the part of society and some were just downright discouraged they were small churches they saw themselves as weak they saw that they, they thought that the darkness was winning and and they didn't know what to do about it and so these are letters written to christians who were struggling and i bet in the description i just gave there was there was at least one thing i said that you can identify with so this is a letter written to christians who are going through hard times and it was about to get even harder because persecution was about to get rough. If you know history, you know that in the 60s AD, Nero, the, the emperor of Rome, persecuted Christians for a while. Paul and Peter were, were martyred during that time, as well as many others. But right around 100 AD, it got much worse. Under, under Domitian and Diocletian, the persecution became severe. And that's when we we hear our stories of of young Christians and old Christians and men, women, and children who believed in Jesus being lit on fire, uh, being beheaded, being crucified, being thrown to lions and torn to pieces in front of crowds of thousands, cheering them on. And Jesus gives them this message to prepare them for those days that are quickly, quickly coming. So what is he saying to them? I want you to hear, again, we won't figure out everything about Revelation, but you will hear these three themes throughout this book. In fact, if you have your Bible with you, you might want to write this down in the margin so you can look for it whenever you read it. The three, things that, the three reasons that this book, I believe, was written. Number one, because we need to be ready. God gave us Revelation because we need to be ready. Ready, yes, for the hard times that are coming, but ready even more than that, ready for the return of Jesus. I want to read for you what comes after uh, verse 11 that we just read. Verse 12 begins by saying, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Like a son of man. That's a term from Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy of someone called the son of man who goes to the ancient of days and has glory and majesty. Jesus, you may recall in the Gospels, liked to call himself the son of man. A title that he took. It says, Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. Are you picturing this in your mind? A man with eyes of blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Quick question, who is this who is speaking? Yeah, you're in church. You can probably have a pretty good idea. It's it's Jesus, right? But it doesn't sound like the Jesus we know, or at least the Jesus of our imagination. And let's be honest with each other. When you get right down to it, the Jesus that most people describe sounds like he'd make a really good host for a children's TV show. You should put him on PBS, right? Between Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and, and Sesame Street, he's real gentle. He's inoffensive. He's very accepting. He never gets angry, never judges anyone. This Jesus sounds quite different. This Jesus is terrifying. What happened? Jesus is saying, I am coming back. And that's one of the themes of Revelation. When I come back, it won't be like the first coming. The first coming I came as a, as a lamb, now I'm going to come as a lion. The first time I came in humility, I came to, to give my life for the souls of those who were lost, now I'm coming back to destroy evil once and for all. And by the way, if, if there's a part of you that says, but I don't like that, I, I don't want an angry God, that's really the, the, those are really the words of people who are way too affluent and who have never suffered. I guarantee you, you meet people who've experienced injustice, they want an angry God. You meet people who've experienced suffering and sorrow and poverty and pain, they want someone to come and wipe out evil. People who've lived under an oppressive regime, they want to see God's wrath come down on those who are, who are evil and wicked. And that's what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming to wipe out evil once and for all and create a new world. And He wants us to be ready for that. We have to be ready to stand before him because I've got news for you. I don't care who you are or what you believe. Every one of us will stand before him someday. We need to be ready. So his message to these first Christians is life is about to get tougher. You need to get ready for that and you all will stand before me someday. You need to be ready for that. But second of all, he gave them this book and he gives us this book because we need to be aware. We don't just need to be ready. We need to be aware that there is another world beyond the world we can see. And that other world is far more real and far more important than the world we spend so much time being obsessed with. Revelation peels back the curtain on reality and shows us that there are unseen forces at war around us. And we have an opportunity to be a part of that battle between good and evil, between right and wrong, between light and darkness. Ephesians 6 talks about this also. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Again, saying there's another battle going on beyond what we can see. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Think about what that means. We as Christians get caught up in a lot of things. We get caught up in a lot of earthly disputes and struggles. And yet the the clear teaching of, of Ephesians 6 and the book of Revelation and so much else in Scripture is that our struggle is not against anything that has flesh and blood. Our war is not against the forces of unbelief in our culture. Our war is not against atheism. Our war is not against Islam. Our war is not against people who believe differently than we do about spiritual matters or politics or culture. Our war is against the forces of evil that are unseen. And we are called upon to take a stand. In a lot of ways, we're like Frodo at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings. I don't know how many of you have ever read The Lord of the Rings series or seen the movies. More of you have probably seen the movies than read the books. Um, Written by J.R.R. Tolkien, devout Christian. And it was basically his his way of showing the world the battle between good and evil in symbolic form, in a fantasy form. And at the beginning of of the book and the movie, there are these creatures named hobbits. And they just look like... Fat little people who sit around eating all the time in a nice uh, pastoral landscape and, and don't really care about anything beyond their world, which really sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Come on. You're going to leave here and you're going to eat. I know you are. So, so, so at the beginning of the book, here's, here's Frodo, this hobbit, who finds out that unbeknownst to him, there's been this war going on. And it's a war for the soul of the planet. And he can either ignore all that and go on eating six meals a day and drinking ale and singing songs and just ignore the rest of the world, or he can go with this band of people and try to do something about it. And that's the call God places on our lives today. You need to be aware that there's more to life than the six o'clock news, more to life than what the Dow Jones did yesterday. More to life than your bank account and your next door neighbor and your vacation and your retirement or whatever you're concerned about. There's something greater. There's something bigger to give your life towards. A struggle for the souls of men and women that lasts forever we need to be aware of that we need to be a part of it that is the way to truly live and finally the book of revelation is there to so because we need to be ready because we need to be aware but third because we need to be encouraged anybody here need to be encouraged this morning anybody here feeling a little down a little discouraged the the people who first received this letter i guarantee you they were discouraged to them it looked like darkness was winning The Roman Empire was huge and powerful and and impervious. Paganism was all around them and didn't like it, didn't look like it would ever be stopped. And Jesus writes them and says, It's okay. Yeah, times are gonna get tough. Yeah, some of you are gonna have to face down lions in the arena, but I'm with you. And I'm going to win. In me, you will win. You will overcome. I'm coming back someday. I know it doesn't look like it, but in the meantime, great things are going to happen. Rome's going to be overturned. The gospel's going to spread. People are going to be transformed. And then I'm going to return someday and make everything right. So hold on. Don't give up. You are on the winning side. I think it was Billy Graham once who said, I've read the last page of the book. We win in the end. It's good news. Do you think that Since that's the message of Revelation, do you think that those first people who read it were encouraged by it? I think so. I think they drank in those words. And I think that's what gave them the courage to sing while the flames lapped at their feet, to to go courageously into the arena and face those lions. I think this is what made those early Christians so brave, they literally would pray and say, Lord, give me the honor of being martyred next. And that's why with all the fury of the Roman Empire against them and and an empire that had never lost a war before had determined to eradicate this one group of people and yet, in spite of their very best efforts, the gospel spread all the more. In spite of, for every believer they killed, ten more sprung up in their place. And that's still going on in many parts of the world today where the enemies of the gospel are at work. God is saying Hold on. Fight harder. I'm on your side, and our side is the winning side. Today, the Roman Empire is long gone. It's only of interest to historians. But the movement that John and his friends were a part of comprises one third of the population of the world. And one day, the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The end of the story is good. So let's just close by looking at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 1 says, Look, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. He is coming. Let me ask you something. Honestly, how did that make you feel when you heard those words? See, that's a great litmus test for your spiritual condition because when you hear those words, there's some of you, I'm sure, who say, oh, that's kind of scary. I don't know if I'm ready for that. Some of you who say, I might be ready, but not yet. Lord, I've still got a lot of living to do before you come back. Can you wait a while? Can you wait until I get married? Or can you wait until our kids are grown up? Or can you wait until I retire or or until I reach this certain pinnacle? And others of you get excited when you hear those words. So let me just speak a word to both of those groups. If you hear those words, he is coming, and you get afraid, or you say not yet, let me remind you that when Jesus came the first time, it was not, in spite of what you may have been told, it was not to list a whole bunch of rules and say, okay, if you don't measure up, when I come back, you're in big trouble. That's not why he came. It wasn't even to start a religion, although he did. That wasn't his main purpose. When Jesus came the first time, his express purpose, which he fulfilled, was to give his life to open a door. So that anyone who wants to be right with God can be. Anyone who wants to be forgiven can be. So that anyone who recognizes their own sinful heart and their own need for salvation can come to Him and say, Oh, okay, Lord, I will take that deal. I will trade my sin for your righteousness. I will trade my condemnation for your freedom and salvation. I will trade my eternal destiny in hell for the inheritance that only you deserve, an eternity in heaven with you. I'll be remade because I'm tired of this life the way it is. Anyone can have that, and you can have that. If you don't have that this morning, you can walk forward and talk to me or Alan, and and you'll walk out of here a new person. And if you've already made that decision, and you're still nervous, and you're still worried, here's what I say to you. Pray to God about that. Just say, Lord, I know I should be excited about your return, and I'm just not. Just accept the truth, which is that we have a tendency to get too in love with the things of this world And to think, well, I don't know what I'll do if I don't have my home anymore and my my relationships that I have now anymore and the body that I have now. I'm just nervous. I don't know what it's going to be like. You know what we're like? We're like little kids who've been invited on a vacation to Hawaii and we don't want to leave the airport because they've got really good hot dogs there. We're in love with the things of this world, and there's nothing wrong with the things in this world. God made them, but he's got much better things to come. We should be excited about the day they said, now boarding, okay? We should be excited about the day Jesus returns. And if you're not, ask Him to make you excited. And if you are excited, if you fall into that camp, when I read those words of verse 7, if your heart started beating faster, and if, if inside you were saying, yeah, amen, come Jesus, I hope it happens today, then let me ask you this. What are you currently, consistently, intentionally doing To make sure everyone around you is ready, is aware, and is encouraged. Because that's our job. That's why we're here.